Get ready to experience the pulse of the outdoor community as we dive into the stories of people's journeys into the outdoor world. Hello and welcome to the Outdoor Pulse. I'm your host, Mitch Dean, and today we have Kelsey Woods on. She is a nomad, skydiver, spiritual guru person. So we're in for a really awesome story today, and we're just going to kind of dive right into it and kind of start with her kind of introducing herself and everything. So welcome, Kelsey. How is it going? Good, good. Awesome. Thank awesome. you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. It. Happy to have you on. Yeah, of course. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm Kelsey. I'm 30 years old. I'm located currently in Maine in the United States. Um, born and raised here, but don't spend a lot of time here at all. Um, Traveling a bunch. <laughs> yeah, I just feel like it's not really a choice. It's really about about coming from the heart. Um, gotcha. Yeah. Um, I'm a yoga instructor. I also do breath work and meditation. I've been a massage therapist for 11 years, and I've also been skydiving for going on a full two years now, I think two and a half. That's awesome. So with the outdoor community and like traveling and all that, when did you initially kind of get into that? What was the initial kind of step in? Honestly, I feel like a lot of it stemmed from uh, depression. I had lost a really good friend of mine. I lost my dog and they were both very young. And I started to realize like life is not promised to be long. And it just kind of kicked me in the butt. And I went skydiving like two months later and sort of found my niche. You know, I found my people, I found my tribe. Um, these people are wild, free. Um, <laughs> many other things as well um but mostly fun you know they're really about uh experiencing life just every day and everything that you can get out of it and that was your like initial so kind of getting into the outdoor community uh did you do anything kind of before that or when you were younger anything like that or was that a big <laughs> That was really the big one. I did a road trip with my dog um, for three weeks. We hiked in 13 different states from Maine all the way down the East Coast and over to Austin, Texas. And then we went to Hot Springs, Arkansas. We mined for crystal quartz out there. And then I drove back with just my dog. And that was, I think, really the initial kind of stepping stone. Um, I sort of had like butterflies in my stomach because of fear and traveling alone as a young woman, you know, I think I was 27 at the time and just my little dog, he passed four days after we got back. Um, so that's when it kind of happened. I mean, gotcha. I went a couple months of being like, okay, depressed, but I really just snapped out of it and just started living my life. So before that, what were you doing and what was your upbringing before that? Um, I liked spending time outside, but as a kid, you know, I just was inside a lot. I wasn't really exposed to a lot of any of the, th the stuff that I do now. Um, I really... Uh, watch TV a lot and, you know, didn't like school. I thought there was always kind of more to life um, than what the society is conditioning us to believe life is good. If you get married, buy a house and have kids, like it just wasn't for me. And I just pulled myself out of that conditioning. What part of the U.S. did you grow up in? Or in Maine. Maine. Gotcha. Yeah. So you just kind of decided one day to just start traveling with your dog or what kind of yeah. led up to that? 
Um, a lot of it is I don't really do that well in the winters up here. Um, it's very dark and cold and the snowstorms we can get up to three feet in one blizzard. Um, so like everything shuts down. Um, and for me, I'm an extrovert. I call myself an extra extrovert. Um, and I just like, I need the social like life to keep me alive. It's just in my nature. And I now come here only seasonally. I visit my family and I operate a business, um, doing massage therapy and now yoga. Um, but I just, I leave and I leave it here. I just recently moved this business. Um, I closed it down last year just so that I didn't have to pay for it. But So when you're on the road, how do you go about finding like clients and just kind of doing your whole nomad thing? What's like? Well, it's really easy when you're a skydiver because um, honestly, like a lot of drop zones are private property. So I would just bring my table and I would set up for the skydivers and staff. Um, and sometimes the drop zone would pay me to uh, like give massages to their staff. Um, and then that pays for my jumps, it pays for my food. And sometimes I will rent a trailer or like, a, it's like a camper or I'll bring my tent. Most places, most drop zones you can camp at for free if you're a licensed skydiver. So you start doing the whole nomad thing after you got back from your trip with your dog and your dog died. And how long after that was, did you finally hit the road and just start going with that? <laughs> well, I sold all of my possessions in December, 2019, which was not that long ago. Um, I went to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia, um, all within three months. And I just had a backpack and that was all I needed. And of course my yoga mat. <laughs> um, but that was when I decided I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm, I've had it. Um, unfortunately things with coronavirus had hit pretty hard and in Vietnam, the government wasn't, they were just like living in a lot of fear so um, I really didn't want to see Vietnam in that manner. So I think I'm going to save it for another time. Um, and I, I actually had come home because of that, like the borders closing. I wasn't really sure how long that was going to go on for. Gotcha. So getting into the whole uh, skydiving thing, back to that, what was your initial pull into that? What kind of drew you to your first jump? I guess would be the um so I had always wanted to do it um and every time I thought about it I was like I am gonna love it I should just do it you know so I initially just did it um I ended up doing a tandem in like I think it was August 2018 and it was for one of their yearly celebrations for the drop zone opening. And they call them boogies. And a boogie is when skydivers get together and they have a party. <laughs> um, so I brought my tent. I had a client who was a skydiver and told me about it. Um, and I actually bought her canopy off of her and I'm flying her parachute now which is ironic awesome um but i had met a guy uh he was a packer he packed parachutes for a living and he just traveled the world packing parachutes for like eight dollars a pack job and um i fell in love with him and he told me well i'm going to new zealand in six weeks and i said well i guess i'm going with you and we bought a converted camper van and did freedom camping in the entire country of New Zealand for six months. Um, so we saved up our money for that one and didn't really skydive that much, but that's really what initiated the more international traveling, I think. Gotcha. So I guess the person you got you into, it would be the client that convinced you to go to the drop zone initially. 
I would have to say so, yeah. Gotcha. And moving on from that, what's kind of been the big staying factor for you? What's been your favorite thing about the community of skydivers and all that that you've discovered? Um, I think there's a factor of sort of like a meditation and a slowing feeling of the mind when you're jumping. Um, and I think that's something that not a lot of other people can relate to. Um, I also can view it as sort of an escapism. Um, I definitely think last year I used it sort of as an escapism um where i was kind of like pushing down a lot of like trauma and not really facing a lot of the things that i had dealt with earlier on in my life um that were pretty traumatic um and i did about 165 jumps just last year in 2019 and um i finally kind of halted myself and started focusing on my spiritual healing and this year in 2020 i've only done three <laughs> which is crazy is corona really put a halt on some of the drops in where they all kind of closed for a while there i'm guessing yeah they were i visited 13 drop zones last year um but the one up here in maine it's only open friday through for through monday so my free time is typically during the week, like early mornings to afternoons. So um, I like to travel on the weekends. <laughs> I just went up north to Moosehead Lake and we hiked the first 100 miles of wilderness in the Appalachian Trail. That's a lot of miles. <laughs> um, so, I mean, we just started it. We didn't do the whole thing. Ah. We just did like a day hike, but um, we met a lot of other um backpackers along the way which was really cool yeah the you brought up the fact that a lot of the drop zones have campgrounds do many of the jumpers just stay at that campground or is it just uh yeah a lot of them actually have campers and they have it's more like a campground lifestyle um they probably have more campers than anything um, in the bigger drop zones, the more popular ones, you can rent them only if you're a licensed skydiver. Um, but typically if you are someone who is looking to get into that sort of environment and really want to become licensed and you're trying to save money, we've seen it all. People sleep in the cars, people sleep in tents. Um, it's not uncommon. Um, and typically, in the community, people are very accepting of what you're doing because they, you're passionate about it, you know? So it's, um, it's really an eye-opening experience, I think, for in many different angles, you know? And I talk to people in what I like to call the real world and they kind of think like, oh, you converted a car and you lived out of it? Like, why? You know, they just don't understand. But when you go to a drop zone, they're like, oh, hey, like you can just park over here. <laughs> Do you need water? And like, they're just like super helpful and not judgmental. I feel like that's the same way throughout like the whole outdoor community because climbers and skiers, you got a bunch of the same people who will live out of the back of their van or back of their car and go out for the season, especially down, at least for me, down at Red River Gorge, you'd get the seasonal people who would work at like Miguel's and the places down there that were climber campgrounds and things like that. And then they would just live out of their tent for like three, four months during the main climbing season. So I just know that a bunch of the, a lot of the outdoor community has a lot of the same similarities with the drive to just live out the back of like a car to make it work. <laughs> I have heard of that. I'm actually looking into more of the Colorado um, environment because they kind of have it all. So we do. It's out been here. calling me. Yeah, it's been calling me amazing. for a while. Um, yeah, I just made I, the move, so it's it's definitely worth it. <laughs> yeah, and where did you come from? Uh, Cincinnati. So moved all the way across. About I think that's like two thousand miles. So it's like a yeah, twenty. Yeah. Wow. 
20 hour drive, something like that. So, but it's been great ever since I've been out here. If you're a mountain person, it's definitely worth it. I am a huge mountain person. The, the mountains uh, in New Zealand were incredible. We did the Tongariro, Tongariro crossing, which is the volcanoes out there. Amazing. So with the traveling, I guess, we'll hop into that now. What was your first big, like, overseas trip to get into that side of? Because I know a lot of people who are into the outdoor community are into the traveling, too. So it's another aspect of everything. Yeah, so I would probably have to say that when I start traveling, I don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think in Bali, I stayed a maximum of four days in one place. Um, Bali was a pretty cool experience. Um, but New Zealand was probably one of my favorites for sure. Um, they say that it's actually the same size as the state of Colorado, which is really funny. Um, but the amount of things that there is to do there is insane. Like that's Bali you said, right? Um, that was New Zealand, New Zealand, New Zealand. Yeah. Um, but I've done it all. I mean, we lived out of a converted minivan, a 1992 Toyota Estima, where the engine was actually like under the seat. And like, if you have to like check the oil, you have to like lift the seat up. And it was just a lot of the cars there are imported, but they're also like, um, really reliable because they're spending all this money to import these cars so they're all like toyotas and they all run forever and it's it's really incredible they have apps on your phone to find freedom camping so as long as you have a certified vehicle um a certified self-contained vehicle then you're allowed to camp at these places for free that's awesome yeah and then you just sell it when you're done so it's like like you're winning like all around you're like well if you have the money to buy it you can just sell it at the end so you're not really losing a whole lot of money that way either you're just spending money on gas and whatever you need repaired and then so when you're traveling like that I guess if anybody was thinking about doing it themselves how how heavy did you carry like how much personal items did you have not much. Um, my last backpacking trip, I think my bag weighed about 25 pounds. Uh, pretty much just involved a pair of hiking shoes, like five pairs of socks, um, probably like 10 yoga pants, <laughs> but um, a bathing suit and, you know, soap, a toothbrush, and a Kindle, you know, and that's pretty much it. Um, I, I roll up a towel and my yoga mat and I clip them on the outside. Um, but of course that, that involves like hostels. So I wouldn't have to do like backcountry backpacking. I've never done that, but I'm very, very interested in doing that. Gotcha. So just like backpacking around like a country, not like the wilderness. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's really, it's really cheap. Um, In like Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, um, and Indonesia, I think the most I spent on a hostel was $10 a night. That was Um, the most. Yeah, that was the most I spent. So most of them were probably between six and $8 a night. Yeah, and the massages. (laughs) massages are like between eight and 12 us dollars over there so you get them all the time in asia it's amazing it's awesome (laughs) yeah so what's been your favorite trip so far favorite backpacking excursion adventure whatever you want to call it i would probably have to say my last one um that was thailand cambodia indonesia and vietnam Um, because I feel like I was on more of a spiritual journey this time. I had quit drinking alcohol and I had quit like partying as much. So I definitely felt like 
Um, my purpose was for myself rather than just to do it, to do it. Um, I visited a lot of Buddhist temples in Thailand. I learned a lot about the monk culture. Um, I learned a lot about their culture, their food. Um, I'm also vegan, so it's very easy to eat a vegan lifestyle out in Asia and Indonesia. Um, I uh, did like a yoga and meditation retreat in Cambodia for two weeks and it was like $400 and it's like all inclusive three meals a day. They even have a day of silence if you would like to do that. Um, so it's like things are very affordable if you're backpacking over there. Um, but I didn't really get a lot of experience in Vietnam just because like I was only there for like 12 days. But I will tell you, it is one of the most beautiful countries to see in the world. The beaches are amazing. That's awesome. Is it just white, sandy, like big, long beaches? Or what's uh, it's, so spectacular about them exactly in your mind? <laughs> I, I think because they have a little bit of everything. So I do think I like a combination of like beaches and mountains. I'm very much about that. So from the south of Vietnam, it's like all hot and like beaches, but the more north you go, you're gonna get more um, mountains. You're gonna get a little bit colder weather. You're gonna get, you know, um, just a different style of people. Like a lot of the, tourists are down south because they're just there for the hot beaches and you know stuff like that um unfortunately i didn't make my way north but i i did have a a yoga retreat job set up out there but i didn't make it <laughs> um, i was like uh i should probably head back to the states before possibly this, <laughs> before everything shuts <laughs> before down before i'm stuck out here for like a year <laughs> so so when you finally decided to start the whole nomad thing and start going everywhere, did your parents react at all or like family members? Were they like, oh yeah, or was it more of a, oh, we kind of expected this to happen? <laughs> um, for my first international endeavor to New Zealand, I got, you can't, <laughs> a lot for my mom. And, you know, I was 27 years old and realized, you know, I can, I can do this, you know, and it's really just taking other people's fears out. And I think that's really important is like not to allow other people's fears to absorb into your life. Um, it's okay if they worry a little bit. Um, I did message her on WhatsApp every time we went to a new place. Um, just because, um, you know, you never know. Um, but my dad halfway expected it. <laughs> he, he is very much like me. And every single weekend he goes up north. He goes four-wheeling. And if it's not four-wheeling and I'm mobiling. Um, so I do think I get a lot of that stuff from my dad's side. Um, he's more of the adrenaline one. Um, but he won't jump out of a plane. He won't do it. He he's done the the plane ride where you can sit next to the pilot seat. It's like thirty bucks to ride pilot seat, um, but he won't jump out. I'm still working on that one. <laughs> so, your initial like jump overseas to do that in New Zealand was after you'd started skydiving, right? Yeah. Yeah. So do you think that the whole getting into the skydiving, which I feel like it's with any outdoor sports, there's a fear aspect that you kind of have to get over with your mind, like a hurdle. You think that doing the skydiving first kind of led to you being able to do that New Zealand trip? Or do you think that without skydiving, you would have still done a big trip like that? Wow. That's a really, really good perspective. Um, you're right. Now that I think about it, um, probably getting rid of that fear, um, especially with skydiving, people think it's really dangerous, but yeah, it's like, well, if I can do that, then I can live out of a van in another country, you know? Um, 
yeah. So yeah, displacing that fear, you know, um, it really can control the mind quite a lot if you let it. Um, and I think that it's really important for us to maintain a more level minded, um, lifestyle that you will feel fulfilling if you die. I mean, you're guaranteed you're going to die, right? So it might as well be a good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I look at it. I'm like, you know, I don't want to die and regret anything. I'm going to do it all. I mean, I was going to go do base camp in the Himalayas. Uh, I, I was, you know, three months away from going up to Northern Vietnam to Laos and then going to Tibet and checking out the Himalayans. Um, gonna have to save it, I guess, you know, but yeah, it just wasn't are, my time. Himalayans <laughs> are on the list. They're just, I mean, I just want to see how massive they are because I know the difference between the Eastern mountains in the Appalachians to the Rockies. And then I can only imagine the difference from the Rockies to like the Himalayans. So yeah. just a huge, huge jump. But yeah, no, I love how in the outdoor community, there seems to be, that's why I brought that up is there's in most outdoor sports and activities, there's that aspect of like a little bit of fear, like you're going out into the wilderness and, you know, mother nature's relentless. So, you know, if it's you versus the world, world's going to win all the time. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. it's kind of changes people's mindsets and I feel like a lot of people who get into the outdoor community kind of have a little bit of that like in the back of their head before they even get into it but it's actually getting into it that kind of opens up kind of the freedom to do a bunch of other things because at least the people that I know once they get into one thing they get into another and they get into another and it just leads to more and more diving into it so yeah, scuba diving is next on my list. <laughs> Was that close to being done before the whole COVID thing hit? <laughs> uh, well, you know, I it's so much cheaper to do it in Thailand. It's like half the cost and you get like the most corals, the most reefs, the most diverse amount of sea creatures. I mean, I saw sharks just snorkeling it's like crazy out if, there if you get certified over there is it accepted in other countries though or yeah yeah is? i think that you have to speak with like certain dive shops out there but kotao k-o-h-t-a-o is an island in thailand and it's only about seven kilometers i think wide and there's 63 scuba diving shops on that one island so that's definitely the place to go if you want to learn how to scuba dive. But I'm now getting into and finding interest in many other things as well, for sure. Like you said, backpacking, things like that. So, I mean, it's an easy jump, I feel like, going from backpacking around a country to going into nature because you just go away from people instead of staying in a hostel. It's really not too much of a difference yeah. the only thing is just learning how to land nav and things like that so you don't get lost <laughs> oh i know yeah i mean that's another good thing about where you go is you can just pop in a different sim card in different countries so it's not that hard to do anymore you know um where you have your phone unlocked most of the time now when you purchase them um so that's definitely a convenience i would recommend in the future just popping sim cards out from place to place yeah i have three from three different countries <laughs> just, just this year <laughs> so um yeah all my whatsapp phone numbers are really confusing <laughs> so i guess if you were gonna suggest someone i i guess we can start with skydiving so someone looking to get into skydiving what would be your first steps to just getting into it from your own personal experience and it's talking always, to others. It's always the money, right? It's always the money. Always. Um, yeah. I think that's really what puts it 
um, in the back seat for most people. It's like, oh, well, I can't come up with $2,800 to become certified. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of work, you know, um, and that's only paying for your first 25 jumps. Um, and that's in America, that's American price where I am, what we charge at this drop zone. Um, and you've got killer AFF instructors here, um, accelerated free fall is the program that you would be going in but you're doing gear rental that's paying for your fuel that's paying for your your pilot that's paying for you know the two instructors that you need so if you think about it like that's a lot of things going into one sport yeah <laughs> um but now that i am licensed i pay 26 dollars per jump I own my own gear and you're pretty much just paying for fuel at that point. So it gets much cheaper. You, it's just the initial startup. Yeah. What's, really. what's the initial cost of like a starter kit? Once you do get licensed and everything like your, your first pack and all that, how much did you pay? Um, so my rig probably cost me about, three thousand eight hundred dollars and it was used but typically if you buy from like a local drop zone or like your home drop zone um somebody will try to help you out um there is a huge online community for it as well um you most likely never ever start off with brand new gear um, it's just, you're going to be going through a process of learning. So the, the sizing of your canopy will get smaller as you increase your jumps. So I've already been from a size 220 parachute down to a 150 square foot canopy in and 200 jumps. Why does that change exactly? So it changes because student canopies are made to ensure your safety. Um, so they're built like we call boats, <laughs> square and not elliptical at all. So um, you're really just kind of like a feather. Um, so it actually, to me, can be a little bit more challenging when you're trying to maneuver um, just because you need to pull more down on the toggles um, to get more of like a turn out of anything. But that's the whole idea behind being a student. You're obviously not going to play around that much as a student um, because, you know, it's, it's scary. <laughs> you know, it's like, whoa, like that was a really fast spin I just did. Um, but once you get down to like a 190 square foot canopy and below they start to become more responsive um so it depends on what you are looking to do in your skydive you have belly jumpers which fall belly to earth they're big on formation skydiving um there's tracking and angle jumps which is movements so you can move horizontally across the sky and you can get up to like 180 miles per hour, which is what I like doing. <laughs> <laughs> I love doing angles. Um, so learning different body positions, you can do head up or head down, um, which is really difficult. They call that free fly. Um, and all the cool kids are free flyers, you know, all the old school belly jumpers are the formation jumpers, you know but uh, they're usually the ones keeping everybody in check. So I am mostly just a belly jumper um, and I've only played around with a lot of the free flying. It, it's very difficult. Um, I have three hours of wind tunnel indoor skydiving time and I still have a hard time getting my sit fly or a stand you know it's it's a lot of work and then a tunnel is even more money so if, if you want to get like good at the sport it's like 
wow, oh my God, like I, I still have to pay, you know, all this money for the tunnel now, <laughs> but I'm, re I'm really in it for just like the fun of it. So I've kind of remained more of a belly and uh, angle jumper for the most part. You don't need as much gear, but in eight jumps, I get to put on a wingsuit. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. An exciting so thing to be excited about that. How, how many jumps do you need for that? Um, so there's different licenses right now. I have a B license. You need 50 jumps for a B license and you do a test and they do requirements in your logbook. Um, so a certain amount of jumps with seven to eight people or a certain amount of jumps with, uh, trying to get close to a target of landing. Um, so stuff like that. You definitely, so 200 jumps is where I'm at right now. I'm like a couple jumps away from 200. Um, and yeah, you can put on a wingsuit. They call that a C license. Uh, you can wingsuit after that. And, you know, I can become a coach and teach students too. I can take a coach course. It's like a couple day program and you can actually have students pay you um, or pay for your slot, which is getting up there. So you'll pretty much jump for free if you become a coach, um, you know, if you have your own gear, really, um, which is what I'm trying to get into because I love teaching. I just like, I'm so passionate about teaching. And I yeah. think my goal, my goal is to start wingsuiting. Um, and um, maybe try a couple of base jumps at Twin Falls in Idaho. Uh, do it the right way. Um, highly recommend that you have a couple hundred jumps before you ever get into base jumping because it is very dangerous. Um, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, but eventually I would really like to become an AFF instructor, I think. I know there's also... Do you ever plan on getting down to Bridge Day down in uh, West Virginia? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I think it was canceled this year, but <laughs> but yeah, yeah it it's happens on during my the list. summer. That normally happens yeah. during the summer, but I'm pretty sure that was canceled this year. Yeah, I, I think it was too. I've thought about going there and climbing while it's going on. So, but oh, haven't cool. been able to do that yet. So. But well, if you do, say hi to all my friends. <laughs> <laughs> the skydiving community is very small, so. <laughs> you probably know uh, a lot of people that end up there. <laughs> oh, yeah. You wouldn't believe it. And it's funny because the more I travel, it's funny you run into more skydivers. You're like, hey, what? How are you here? Like my ex-boyfriend who I traveled with in New Zealand, he started a job up in, New in uh, Georgia here in the States. And um, he ended up working for two of the people that he jumped with in Taupo, New Zealand. And he's like, what? This is crazy. It's just like such a small world, really. Yeah, my dad is uh, a pilot. Before he got his job where he's at now, he was flying skydivers in Ohio for a while. So. Oh, which part? Um. I'm trying to remember the name of it right now. It's just north of Cincinnati in up near like the Mason area. So I forget the name of the, of the drop zone. That nice. I jumped in Ohio. What part? Cle Cleveland Skydiving Center. My friend okay, yeah, Marcy. Yeah, would not have been that one. Yeah, my friend Marcy owns it. And there's like a huge Amish culture out there too. Oh, so yeah. it's like really <laughs> cool. They'll like come out and watch you jump on Sundays and stuff. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of weird up there because I, I, I had friends that went to Kent. So I'd go up to Kent State and you're driving right through Amish country, which I think yeah. it's the, is it, I think it's either the largest or the second largest Amish community in the U.S. So it's the most <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> I know that much. Oh yeah. But yeah, no, the whole, it just sounds, I, I, I didn't really know much about the skydiving community, but it just sounds so much like the rest of the outdoor community where everyone's welcoming and especially climbing as big as it's getting, it's still pretty small of a community that actually goes outdoor climbing. So you, 
go down to the red and you'll run into people that you've ran into before climbing other places or if you got the new river gorge the people that are climbing outside still a pretty small community probably bigger than skydiving but it's still not that big but yeah. you still get the same you're at like a campsite and you'll just be talking and run into people that you've met before camping somewhere else so it's very That's, much the same same type of community same type of like situation I guess. <laughs> That's definitely on my list too is is climbing. I, I've really I've noticed I'm kind of leaning towards that too. Um, I really want to go out west for that though you know it's not really big out here. It's I it depends on where you're at. I mean Red River Gorge is a mecca. I mean I met people from Spain, from Canada, from all over the world climbing down there and it's literally the mecca of the east so if you got the west has more big climbing areas like super high multi-pitch walls but the red is known for its single pitch so uh it's it's just a beautiful area to climb into so you run into people from all over there uh the coolest guy i met was some guy from spain that did the same thing as you did with traveling around. He sold all of his stuff in Spain and went on a three month climbing trip in the U S and just went around to all the different places for climbing. And he, and he, he was near the end of it and we just drank and talked and had a good night. <laughs> That's awesome. So they sound, he sounds pretty cool. <laughs> there, I mean, that's a dime a dozen in the climbing community. There's so many people that just are, kicking it a lot of the climbing community lives out of vans uh that that do that kind of stuff so i know van life's huge in the climbing community which it sounds yeah. like it's a kind of a thing in the skydiving community too with oh absolutely i'm actually looking for one right now <laughs> uh if i'm gonna be here i might as well have a van because it's definitely limited my uh ability to travel as much um, so I'm just picky. I really want a ProMaster 2500 high top. <laughs> <laughs> Very specific. <laughs> yes, so. I am reliable and spacey. <laughs> so before you were just living out of your car, that was it? Um, I had it a van? Nissan Pathfinder that Pathfinder. I took the second row seats out of. Um, and then I built a platform and a bed. And then when you opened the back latch, it, I built a kitchen that had a hand pump sink with just like a fresh water tank and a gray water tank. Um, and it was only like a foot and a half wide. Um, but yeah, I could cook, but it, it just kind of sucked in the rain. But <laughs> I mean, you figure it out. Some drop zones have a place that you can go to cook. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. Like no one's going to tell you like you can't come over and like cook, you know, like it's just, if you need something, someone's going to help you out like chances, you know? So having lived out of a vehicle, I guess, what are some of the necessities you would say to put into a vehicle that you're modifying to live out of? <laughs> uh, bed. <laughs> a some. bed's probably the most important part. Um, I think, um, but my necessities are, you know, a decent kitchen because I'm vegan. It can be difficult for me traveling, especially here in the United States. Um, so I think a kitchen with like a proper amount of water storage would be really helpful so that I can live off the grid, um, solar panels and a controller, um, so that I can control the temperature inside as well and insulate it. Uh, correctly as what, well. What would be the proper amount of water that you'd want to be able to store? I'd probably want at least 25 liters. Uh, I've been traveling so much. I'm not on the, the United States metric system yeah. anymore. So how much is 25 liters? I think there's like three liter, 3.75 liters or something in a gallon. Uh, I'll look it up real fast. So it's probably like seven or eight gallons, I think. But I think that's plenty. It lasted us about a week in New Zealand yeah. with 25 liters. That was right. Uh, not 3.75, but 3.785. So that was close. But yeah. Oh, so nice. About, so about 
eight, yeah, about eight gallons, something like that. So that'll typically last you about, you know, a week doing dishes, you know, you're, you don't probably really, I mean, you probably could drink it, but (laughs) that's not your drinking Um, water. That's just your, yeah, you, you don't want to, but you can always boil it. Um, if you had to, (laughs) but I would have to say like the kitchen is probably the most important part. A shower would be really nice too. Um, maybe like an outdoor shower, I think would be cool with like a little tiny hot water heater. So, you know, something that lasts you like five minutes or something would be plenty. I think, um, that was kind of a struggle. I remember in New Zealand, um, just having to go to like the local gym and pay for, you know, your shower. (laughs) And it was like $5 every time, you know? Um, but I mean, it's, it's possible to do. I just think during this time where everything is more difficult and many things are kind of like, um, not really promised to be open. I think that a shower would be necessary. (laughs) I feel like everything's starting to open up a little bit more again. I mean, you can at least probably find a shower. (laughs) Yeah. That makes me really happy. Planet fitness memberships are really good for that too. So I have one of those. I've always had one of those just in case. Um, also probably nice if you just want to get a workout and they're all over the place. So if you ever had a gym. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a yoga instructor as well. So I do a lot of that every single morning. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it would be pretty convenient. Most drop zones have showers that you can use as well. Um, if you're a licensed skydiver or if you live there, most people live at the drop zone seasonally because they're finding jobs every six months at a different drop zone. Um, that's typically what happens um, is a skydiver will apply for a place and then just dedicate the one season there, which is generally six months. Gotcha. Um, so they'll just move from, from drop zone to drop zone usually. So you got into it up in Maine. Did you get into it at your local drop zone up there? Where did you do all your like initial jumps to get certified at? Was it your Yeah, I did. I did mine up here just because it took me almost a whole season to do it. Um, Probably almost three months to actually finish it out because I was working so much to pay for it as well. I only could jump on Sundays. And the weather in the East Coast can be kind of iffy. <laughs> so <A little> bit. <laughs> um, you have to remember, like, you have to take into consideration, like, winds. Um, yeah. Students are not, are not allowed to jump under 15 mile per hour winds in this state. Every drop zone is different, but typically it'll be around that, around that number, either f- anywhere from 14 to 16 miles per hour. That's not even that fast. No, (laughs) (laughs) not really. But I think it's just because of the size of the parachute that they're using. Um, You know, they can really float away (laughs) if you're (laughs) jumping in anything higher than that. Any stories of that? People just missing the drop zone by a lot because of... (laughs) Yeah, of course. There's this thing called off landing. (laughs) Now, our drop zone in Maine is a very challenging one to learn at because we grow a lot of trees here. We also grow a lot of rocks. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) yeah, our drop zone is really small and it's surrounded by just tall pine trees. So I think the landing area here is only a half a mile long. And it's, it's north and south landing pattern only. So if the winds are coming from the east or the west, we typically won't be jumping um, because the runway runs south and north and you don't ever want to cross the runway for obvious reasons. <laughs> um, but I went down to Skydive City in uh, Florida for a while and that's a pretty, pretty well-known uh, worldwide drop zone. Um, 
I kind of grew out of it, <laughs> um, but they have a lot more space, a lot of cow fields and stuff. So you'll see like our friends on their GoPros showing their videos, like almost landing on cows and stuff. <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness. And like, um, just like swamps, uh, people accidentally land in swamps. But to be honest, like off landings don't happen a lot. And if you're familiar with the sport, you'll know that it's mostly wingsuiters that land off because they're probably just fooling around up there. <laughs> um, and they just, they just, yeah, they lose track of where they're going. So <laughs> they, One um, second you're here, next second you're there. And then you're like, well. <laughs> well, and if the winds change too, you're in a wingsuit and it affects you a little bit more, I think. Um, I wouldn't know from experience, but I know from talking with other people um, that wingsuiters are typical for the most off landings. Um, and then typically someone's going to be watching you and someone will come get you. Um, so it's not like that scary, really. As long as you find a nice flat place to land, you should be okay. Gotcha. Well, I don't think I have any more questions I can think of. Is there anything else that you'd want to add in? Um, about your I journey think, to where you're at and just. I think more of making sure that people are following their path is really important. Um, I think it's important to add not comparing your life to another person. Um, and just going with what you feel is passionate in your heart and what you feel is right and fulfilling to you is a really important message to, um, expose to people who possibly want to experience, but don't have the courage to experience the things that we're doing, um, to really just step out of, of your comfort zone. And, um, I think you'll notice a huge shift and transformation in yourself and then you'll become pretty inspiring to other people around you. And I definitely think that's probably one of the most important things is to take care of number one. And that is you. So. Yeah. Take care yeah. of yourself before you can take care of others. <laughs> I 100% agree with that statement. <laughs> yeah. Well, so no, I think that's about it. Awesome. Well, very happy to have you on. That's an awesome story. I was very excited to have you on and hear everything. So glad that you were able to take the time to answer all the questions about how you got into your sport and how you got into the outdoor community. And I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I, yeah. I feel honored really <laughs> to be part of your podcast. So thank you so yeah, much. No problem. Take thank care. you very much. You too.